Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Flying Free Podcast. Today I have with me Jimmy Hinton of JimmyHinton.org. And he is going to, we are going to be talking about church abuse, really, spiritual abuse. And he is a, Jimmy is an, uh, has a unique perspective because he is a pastor. And so, like for me, I, I've had so many bad experiences with pastors that uh, it's always really refreshing to meet a pastor that I can talk to and can trust. And so I think, I hope that you will have the same experience as you're listening to Jimmy today. Um, I'm going to actually let him introduce himself to you right now and tell us a little bit, Jim. Well, first of all, Jimmy, I just want to welcome you to, to the Flying Free Podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you for having um, me. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to do, well, tell us a little bit about what you do and then how... A little bit about your journey and how you came to do it. Okay, so first of all, I don't know how much you should trust this pastor because I wear <laughs> sandals all year round and it is it's 15 degrees outside right now. It's snowing and I've got my sandals displayed and it's full glory. So I love the cold and um, yeah, so a lot of people tell me that they can't trust me because because I, I like the cold. <laughs> <laughs> But it's that is my uh, that's my my one vice is where where do you live again? Where's your location? We're in southwestern Pennsylvania, about sixty miles east of Pittsburgh. Okay, well I, I'm yep. up in Minnesota right now, so <laughs> nice. <laughs> We're talking single digits here. Yeah, yeah, you guys are. You'd love it here. There, yeah, I would. So yeah, a little bit about myself and how I'm here. Um. So I started uh, full-time preaching in 2009, uh, actually at my home congregation, the congregation I grew up at, just a little small church in rural Pennsylvania. And um, two years later, in 2011, uh, a young adult disclosed to me that she had been sexually abused by my dad uh, whenever she was a, a very small child. And um, uh, my, my dad was the former minister. He was actually my preacher growing up um, at the church that I, that I'm preaching at now. And so obviously that, you know, it, 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 it devastated me. It confused me. It made me angry. It uh, humiliated just a, a flood of emotions hit me all at once. And uh, this about an hour before I had to do a wedding rehearsal for one of my church members. So I was not in a very good frame of mind for doing that. Um, and to make a long story short, uh, I, I'd spoken with my mom and we both only saw one option before us. And that option was to report this to the police. Um, this was before all the Jerry Sandusky stuff at Penn state. And, um, in fact, that was just starting to get kicked up, um, about the time that we reported my dad. So, I was not aware of Pennsylvania's mandated reporting laws, and I tell people that um, I was an uninformed pastor who didn't even know that I was a mandated reporter. So I wasn't reporting because I had to. 
Um, I was reporting because it was the right thing to do. That was the only option that my mom and I saw before us. And so um, it was disclosed to me on a Friday. On a Monday, my mom and I were turning in my childhood hero to our local barrel police. Mm. Um, we had no idea uh, how many victims would, would um, be uncovered in the investigation. And once he was called in, um, he confessed to 23 victims, though we think he has hundreds of victims. And um, some of those victims were young children uh, at my congregation at the time of his, his arrest, at the time of discovery. And so my wife and I uh, not only were trying to, to figure out how to navigate this um, as his son and, and daughter-in-law, uh, but also as the pastor of a church uh, where the abuser happened to be my father. And so my wife and I had to make the very difficult decision to, um, this was a personal decision, but we drove to the house of the family that had the young victims in our church. And we went there um, as their pastor and pastor's family. And we broke the news to them because we decided that if that was our child, we would want to hear it from our pastor before the police knocked on the door to tell us that our kids had been molested. Um, and I tell people, I, you know, I, I drove truck for years and uh, I have over a million miles under my belt. And the longest mile or two miles that I drove was from our house to that family's house to tell them that my dad had raped every one of their young daughters. Wow. Um, so that began a journey. Um, where my dad got arrested uh, pretty pretty immediately within within a few weeks of reporting he was arrested um, he was sentenced a year later uh, actually four days before father's day it was the same week of the sandusky trial in june of 2012 um, so that ended up being a good thing because uh, our story got buried very deep in the newspapers because Jerry Sandusky was front page of every newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, he is serving now a 30 to 60 year sentence in prison. Um, he'll be 90, 91 or 92 years old when he's first eligible for parole. Um, so my dad will, will die in prison. And um, yeah, just so much, so much to wade through and uh, to try to figure out. So, uh, I've kind of dedicated my life to understanding abusers and um, deception, uh, specifically deception techniques, and um, studying us. What is it about us that makes us blind to abuse? And so I, I do a lot of preventative uh, trainings. I've partnered up with two neuroscientists, uh, Dr. Stephen Macknick and his wife, Susanna Martinez-Conde. Um, they're professors at, um, in New York City, and they study deception and, and how that affects the human brain and kind of the pathways and um, very specifically deception techniques. Their research has nothing to do with abuse, and I applied their research to the field of pedophilia because I saw the things that I had read in their book um, just matched almost identically to the things that my dad had done um, whenever he would deceive all of us. So that got the attention of um, Drs. Magnick and Martinez-Conde, and uh, we formed a partnership 
and um, we now uh, collaborate and, and do research together. So that is fascinating. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. Wow, and so needed. And that's information. Yeah. Whatever you guys uncover and the connections that you make, that is information that could, you know, potentially rock the Christian world. I think it's revolutionary. And if you if you go on my website, jimmyhinton.org and, and go under the videos, there's actually a video where the three of us co-present. Um, they came to Somerset and you know it was specifically just for us to collaborate. Uh, but they asked me if it would benefit our community if uh, they gave a talk on the science of deception. And so, you know, I spoke with our, our chief of police and uh, he was just fantastic. And he clicked his fingers and made it happen. And so we had, uh, we had police there. We had um, people from all the advocacy uh, organizations in a three county area. A bunch of them came to that training and um, it, the videos are on my website and it is powerful, powerful stuff. How I want to put a link um, to those in this podcast. What, what, how many of them are there? How many videos are there, there for that? Two, two of them. Okay. There's part one and part two. Part one and part two. And what is the name I should be looking for when I go? Champions of Illusion, which okay. is actually the name of their most recent book. So I asked them if it was okay to, to use that title. Um, for the presentation that we did together and, and they gave the okay for that. So. Okay. I can't wait to check that out myself. Yeah. It's, it's really, really good. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to specifically talk with you in this podcast episode is because so many of the, of my readers and my listeners and the women that I talk to on a regular basis have not only, well, most of them are women of faith who have lived, many of them, two and three decades in emotionally abusive marriages. Um, a few of the, a handful of them have also experienced physical abuse, but most of the women I work with, it's emotional abuse and spiritual abuse. So they come out of very conservative religious backgrounds. Um, they've been taught... Um, you know, the, the whole idea of male headship and patriarchy, or I call it the soft patriarchy, which is complementarianism. So that has been their background, and it, it was also been mine, in which they believe that women, are, our job or our role is different from men's, and it actually kind of sets them up. I mean, if you're in a great marriage, that can work, but it sets up those who are in abusive marriages. It's like the perfect storm. <laughs> it, yeah. it's just, it sets them up for uh, just the repeated cycle of trying to get help, but being told that they basically that they, that they don't deserve help or they, they're not worthy of help because they are women and, they, and that's part of their job is to, you know, keep your mouth shut and do what your husband says and, you know, uh, yeah. cater to his whims and wishes. And so the, so what happens though, is a lot of times women will actually reach out, you know, who would a conservative Christian woman reach out to? Who's the first people that she'd re reach out to for help if she's got problems, she's going to reach out to her church. Yeah. And so what has happened is, um, you know, churches end up actually just to make a make their long journey sh uh, the long story of their journey short, they actually end up being the one that's accused and blamed, and the 
their husband is the one who ends up being kind of nurtured and coddled and even given counseling and the whole nine yards. And oftentimes, if the woman does eventually decide, well, I'm going to end this marriage, it's already been destroyed by the broken vows, so I'm going to make it legal and try to protect myself, the church will actually end up excommunicating communicating her and the husband will end up having a safe place. So now that was my experience, but Mm -hmm. it was not, but I am not alone. I am like a typical case. And, um, and it's not, that's not just the only kinds of abuse that keep, that I've seen happen in churches. I've seen my youth group growing up, the youth pastor abused a couple of sexually abused a couple of the girls that I went to youth group with. Um, I was groomed myself in my early twenties by a very charismatic pastor who, you know, his wife sat down with me at, when I got engaged and said, gee, I thought, you know, my husband, I thought God was getting you ready to be my husband's wife, next wife. Cause she was sickly. And, um, there was talk that, you know, is she going to die? And it just crazy, crazy stuff. Okay. And so th- this is Typical. It's and and then I recently read too or heard a statistic that that clergy or pastors are actually that's one of the jobs that abusive people actually look to get into because it's easy to hide in that kind of a job and people who you know people are very trusting of a pastor. So what do you have to say about that as a pastor and um as someone who works with people, how do you how do you respond to women when they say this is these are all of the things that have happened to me, and now, and I love Jesus, but I'm scared of the church. I'm scared of pastors. I'm scared of elders. Yeah, I think first of all we need to acknowledge it. We need to realize um, that it is a problem. That there are tremendous amounts of people huge volumes of people being abused um, in our churches. You know, abuse doesn't happen out there. Um, It it happens both out there and within the church. Um, You know, it's interesting in in Ephesians 6, when Paul's talking about spiritual warfare, he drops a, a, a line in there that's almost like Paul just assumes that the audience knows. Like, you know, it's, um, it's not like he's given this profound idea and he elaborates on it. It's just assumed that the Christians know that. But the term is this, um, in the heavenly places. You know, he's talking about the, the, the spiritual forces and the powers and, you know, there's all this spiritual warfare that's going on. And he says, in the heavenly places. You know, it's, it's among us. It's around us. And so we shouldn't be surprised that this kind of stuff is going on in, in the church. And yet... Uh, I see it over and over. And I, I, I first was introduced to this phenomenon pretty early on when my dad got arrested. And, I, you know, I started speaking out about it immediately. And I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I didn't know the first thing about deception and, and abuse. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I just knew that my dad was an abuser and he fooled us all. So I was out speaking, you know, speaking out about uh, against abuse and people would come up to me, religious leaders would come up to me and say, um, that's really horrible what, you know, what happened to your, to your family. And, you know, we're so sorry to hear all this, but how's, we're just curious, how's your dad doing? Wow. <laughs> and I was like, 
It wasn't just once or twice or even 10 times. It was over and over and over. Unreal. That was the burning question that was on the minds of religious leaders. And so that was my first introduction to this, that um, the, the victims aren't even on their radar. Yeah. And so I, I eventually got to the point where I would come back and people learned to stop asking me that question because I would say, my response would be, well, he's doing fine. You know, he has three meals a day. He has health insurance that most of us can't get. Um, he's well taken care of. It's his victims who aren't doing well. Yes. And they would, they would just be like, oh, and like awkwardly walk away, yes. which I took a little bit of pleasure in. I'm going to be a little bit honest. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think, I think at the heart of the issue is uh, it, it's not just patriarchy because that does exist but it existed in jesus's day you know like uh, he lived in a very androcentric male-centered jewish community um that itself isn't necessarily abusive um so you know we uh, some i have to be careful here because i don't want to say that that's abuse in itself because it's not but i do see that it does lend itself to abuse and certainly jesus dealt with abusive men um, all throughout his ministry. And so the question is, what was Jesus's response to the women who are abused by these institutions, uh, by the Jewish community, whether they were Pharisees or Sadducees or Essenes? Um, Jesus' response to those who are abused, um, spiritually abused, sexually abused, physically abused, was always to set them free, to come in, to intervene, um, to speak up on their behalf, and to send them away in peace. And his mission laid out in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus stood up in the, in the synagogue, and he read from Isaiah, you know, in Luke chapter 4, he lays out his mission. And it's to set, it, set um, the captives free, to proclaim liberty uh, to the oppressed, to heal the blind. And I think he's talking about the spiritually blind as well, too. And Jesus says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. And they, of course, they're all applauding him and, the, you know, rah, rah, rah. Yeah, this is wonderful because they think he's talking about them. Mm -hmm. And then he stands up and he talks about how a prophet's not, um, not welcome in his own town. And, you know, he, he um, talks about Elijah and Elisha and how that, you know, there are all these poor people and all these widows, but yet only one was healed. And that not inside of their own land. They went outside. And what Jesus was saying in that passage was there were all this host of um, poor people and widows and orphans and oppressed in the land of Israel. And none of the leaders stood up and did anything about it. And they became outraged. They went from you know, applauding them, and they were all drooling over Jesus reading from Isaiah and talking about, you know, setting at liberty the, um, those who are oppressed. And, you know, they're all applauding him until Jesus calls them out and says, you know, you guys are those religious leaders. They're still around us. We still have widows. We still have orphans. We still have oppressed people. We still have abused people. And you're not doing anything about it. Yep. And so that's why Jesus was so scandalous to the religious leaders. He wasn't necessarily coming to, to change the patriarchal system per se. He was coming to, to address abuse in all of its forms, 
including the patriarchal system. Um, but Jesus didn't, he didn't tolerate abuse of any kind. He just didn't. Yep. And he wasn't afraid to call it out. You know, no. You had mentioned, um, well, let me just catch the listeners up to speed here on one thing and then I want to go back to it. But um, I just, uh, Jimmy just recorded a workshop for the Flying Free membership group. And in that workshop, he talked about some of the things that we're going to talk about here. But um, one of the things he brought out was um, actually, I have a question for you too, Jimmy. I got to sure. remember it. Um, about the do not forsake the assembly. Actually, let's just go right there. Yeah. Um, in in this uh, workshop that Jimmy did, you or you, Jimmy, you <laughs> you mentioned <laughs> a verse that is often used to um, kind of guilt people into making sure that they go to church. Yeah. And 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 by the way, we talked about how you know we both are big proponents of church. Obviously you're a pastor, so you're a big proponent of church and I am too. Um, but the verse that you said that was often quoted is the one where it says, do not forsake the assembly. And I don't, I don't have the verse memorized, but do not forsake the assembly of the. Some are in the habit of doing. Um, so both of these scriptures that I'm going to talk about come from Hebrews, but the forsaking of the assembly, um, in the original language, you, you lose so much in translation. I mean, just from any language, from one language to another, you lose a lot in in translation um, because it just becomes impossible to to translate the sense of uh, and the color and the dimension of of what we get from our native language. So, in that passage that says, "Do not forsake the assembly," um, the word that's used actually means, "Do not ignore." those who have been um, hurt and, and oppressed. Um, that's the sense of that word, the mm -hmm. literal sense of that word. And we've, we've taken a literal translation of that and, and applied it to American, uh, the American church model and said, well, forsaking the assembly means not going to church when the church meets on Sunday morning. That's not what it means. The, the the heart of that passage is don't be uh, don't be the priest who walks on the opposite side of the road of the man who's bleeding. You know the parable of the good Samaritan. Right. That's the sense of that passage. And then the the, the other one that is misused. So you know, just to clarify, don't ignore people who are who are who are hurt. That's right. what it means to not forsake the assembly. And then the other one that is widely misused is Hebrews 13, 17, um, that's widely translated, um, submit to your leaders. Um, my translation of that, my, my literal translation from Greek to English is this, be persuaded by those who go before you. Uh, that word, those who go before you is translated in the English translation as leaders. So, you know, submit to your leaders, get in line with them. That's how it's used, but that's not what it means. So be persuaded by those who go before you and yield. So the word that we translate submit, um, that's an unfortunate translation. In a lot of places, the word submit is an unfortunate translation because the, the literal meaning of that, the sense of that word is to yield, to yield to. 
So I get, you know, I gave the analogy of me driving truck. I, I didn't use my 80,000 pound, um, 70 foot long truck as a weapon and come out and say, well, I'm bigger than everybody else. You need, you know, because I'm a truck driver, you need to submit to me. Um, when I merged onto highways, I yielded to traffic and traffic yielded to me. Mm-hmm. There's this triangle sign that says when you're merging with traffic, you need to yield to them. Why? For safety. It's for the safety of every, it's a protective, yielding is a protective uh, uh, step. And when you yield, you certainly don't turn into bumper cars with people and tell them they need to submit to you because you're a leader. The, the yielding is emerging and going along with. You merge into traffic with people on a highway and, and that's what yielding is. That's the sense of this word. Okay, so be persuaded by those who go before you and yield for they watch over your souls as one's about to give account that they may do it with joy and not groaning for this is not beneficial to you. So it, it's not submit to the leaders because Hebrews 13, 17 says that you need to, you know, you need to submit to them because they're leaders. That's not at all what that passage means, not even close to what that passage mm-hmm. means. So, you know, I think, I think those are things that are really important. You know, I often say bad theology leads to bad practices. We've got a whole lot of bad theology. Yeah. It, 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 it elevates church leaders when it shouldn't. And ironically, it's the abused, the very people who Jesus came to free and to defend, when the abused cry out about their abuse, that's when church leaders become most abusive towards the abused and most protective towards the abusers. And it makes no sense. Biblically, it doesn't make sense. Um, If you're an atheist, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. It does not make sense to protect the person who's causing harm intentionally, willfully, and habitually on innocent and vulnerable people. Yep. Well, and I think that's how you can tell an overall general, you can, you can get an overall general idea of the culture of, of, the, of a church by how they respond to people who are disenfranchised and who are hurting. Yes. And, you know, it's popular to respond to, you know, to put together some volunteers to go to the local soup kitchen and serve soup. But what are you doing with the people that are actually in your congregation? What are you doing with the messy situations where you have sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse? What are you doing with those people? Cause that's messy, you know, yeah. and people, right. a lot of times leaders, they want, they want the, the marriages in their church to, to be successful. And because that, you know, they're, they're out there teaching and trying, you know, teaching Sunday school classes and trying to get people to have good, healthy marriages. And if the marriages in their, if they've got marriages in their church that are failing, then I don't know if they think that it reflects on them and their teaching. I, or, I do. I do. And, do you? And I try, okay. I do. I, as a church leader, I tried to understand, okay, what is it? You know, I, I turned my, I turned my own dad in, um, not because he was, you know, he was a horrible dad growing up and I, you know, he was, I was, you know, just ready to, to put him away. It was quite the opposite. 
Yeah. We had no idea that my dad was an abuser. He was my absolute best friend. Wow. I mean, hands down, uh, we were very close. I had no reason whatsoever to ever suspect that he was sexually abusing children. And, and when this young woman came to me, that was the only allegation that had ever been brought to any of us about, about him. I had one allegation by one victim. Yep. And so I, I started going back and I'm like, what is it about church leaders that, that makes them not want to reach out to, to hurting people? Because I, couldn't, I could not look across my desk, my office desk. I couldn't look across the table at her, across the desk at her and see her in her broken condition and not stand up and protect her with my life. Yeah. I didn't I mean I didn't know if I was going to be fired. I didn't I went home and I had that conversation with my wife. I said, "We had just bought our house." And I said, "I don't know if we're going to lose our house, if we're going to have to move out of town. I don't know if I'm going to lose my job. I don't know any of that." She had just gotten a teaching job too. We both brand new jobs. Mm. I said, "I don't know. We may lose all of this if I turn my dad in." My wife looked at me and she said, you got to do what you got to do. That's, that's what Jesus stands for. That's what the gospel stands for. So I was trying to figure that out. And, and, you know, as a pastor, what is it that causes people to turn hurting people away and, and to ignore them, to, to, to silence them, to mistreat them? And I think, I think a lot of that is this idea there, there's a certain arrogance that happens without us even knowing it as pastors, because we get addicted to success. We get addicted to the powerful testimonies, to these nice, clean stories. And, and so I've done presentations before where I say, we've become addicted to cardboard testimonies. It's yeah. the, you know, on, on the one side of the cardboard, we march the uh, churches are doing this. They, they bring, these people up and on one side of the cardboard, it says one thing. And it's like my, you know, I was addicted to drugs and then they, they turn it around and on the backside. Um, now I've been clean for five years or whatever. And then they march the next person across the stage. And, you know, there's the melodramatic music in the background because we're Americans and we, you know, we need (laughs) our, you know, we got to drum it up. We got to do it big and we got to market it. And so, we march all these people across the stage and, and, and immediately I put myself or try to put myself into the shoes of survivors of abuse. And immediately the question that came to my mind is what the heck would I write on the back of my cardboard? Mm-hmm. There is no, there's no instantaneous transformation. And now I have all this joy in the Lord, yeah. you know, like what do I write? What the heck do I write on the back of my piece of cardboard? And so survivors face this dilemma their story doesn't fit the narrative of these big, powerful testimonies because they're struggling. So true. And ministers, quite frankly, it's exhausting. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not being mean or rude. Uh, just as people who work with other people, if you look at the burnout rate with um, people who are in the advocacy work, the burnout rate is through the roof. It's yeah. exhausting. But until you're willing to enter into the lives and the mess of other people and actually be there with them and commit to it, um, you're not going to ever have time for them. And so I think, I think we've become, as Americans, we've become addicted to this model of instant transformations. 
And anybody who, who doesn't instantaneously forgive their abuser or instantaneously heal or instantaneously, instantaneously stop threatening suicide, we just don't have time for them. And you don't have enough faith and all these cliches that we throw at them. I, yeah. I really think that's the heart of a lot of the problem. Yeah. I think too, um, that maybe a lot, some of these spiritual leaders who are not really, their knee jerk reaction is not to, oh my goodness, I feel this compassion on you. I need to help you. Maybe it's because they have never been experienced a complicated or complex and extraordinarily painful situation in their own lives or someone close to them has never experienced something like that. I know that um, you know, for me, I, I have a child who has, one of my children has mental illness, like a diagnosed mental illness. And it has been, ex- I, I can't even, I can't even describe the pain that our family has been in because of this particular situation. And we have been on a journey of trying to get help and trying to figure out how to navigate all the layers and layers of stuff that's going on because of it. And so, but before, you know, as a new mom with my very first baby in my arms, I would never have even known that there could be such a thing. I didn't know it existed. I didn't know. And if someone had a child who was going off the rails, I would have been inside my mind. I might not have said anything, but inside my mind, I would have thought, you know, well, maybe they weren't a very good parent or maybe they could have done things differently or, you know, maybe it's their fault that their child is like that. And instead of understanding the complexities and having compassion and, um, not even solving someone else's problem. I, I don't think that pastors can necessarily solve all these problems, but no. just to be able to sit with compassion with somebody and to believe that what they're saying is true and you know, validate them and have empathy, that's something that I think we need to see more of. And I think maybe, I, I don't know, maybe it's just that they just haven't experienced these kinds of painful things in their own lives. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there, I mean, there's a number of reasons. There, there's not just one reason why church leaders respond the way that they do. You know, it's multi-layered, and I, I completely agree with you. I think that that's another component. I think another one is, um, you know, having lived with an abuser, having gone into ministry because my my dad was a minister. Um, you know, I'm in ministry because of him. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, it's not like he was this weirdo and he was off in a corner, like, you know, petting little kids on their head, and that wasn't my dad. Uh, he was a normal, fun, funny, um, good preacher, good dad, always present, always went to ball games with all of his kids, 11 kids. Um, he was a present father. Um, so that's all I ever knew of him. Um, so, you know, I think the, the, another, another layer to this is it takes an incredible amount of humility when you hear an allegation of abuse from somebody who's beloved, who's your peer, who's your boss, who's whatever, you know, all these church leaders, when allegations of abuse come up about their deacons and their elders and their pastors, uh, it takes an incredible amount of humility. I know because I lived it. It takes an incredible amount of humility to admit that you have been fooled and you've been played your entire life by the yes. person who you loved and you trusted and uh, an incredible amount of humility. 
Yeah. And I think part of the problem is these church leaders are so quick to, to, to defend their friends and their buddies. And I, I, I see it every single day, every single day. And they're like, no, it couldn't be him. And they're in such denial, not because um, they love that kids are being abused or, or adult women are being abused or whatever. Um, it's not because they love abuse. It's because they don't have the humility to step back and detach themselves emotionally from the person who's their best friend and to look at the facts objectively. Right. And that is a tough, tough thing to do. I'm telling you, it's uh, to separate myself. And I had to do it instantaneously. I mean, immediately. I had a sobbing victim sitting three feet across from me at my desk telling me that my dad sexually abused her for years when she was a kid. If you don't think that that was a tough pill to swallow in that moment to believe her, think again. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. So in your, so your dad, was his, was his focus all outside of the family then? So that in, so the family was kind of protected, but the outside, it was. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to do a spoiler alert. And um, we have never spoken publicly about this. So this, this is actually the first time ever. And this is because there's a, a CBN series that's uh, coming out where they're doing our story and my youngest sister is actually the person who disclosed to me okay so it uh it was inside of the family which makes that um that much tougher because it wasn't just going on and we didn't know it it was going on i mean right in front of us under our nose and we were clueless we didn't know we had no idea none of us we were shocked so yeah, it was, um, he was both an incestuous and outside of the family. And again, you know, there are 23 victims, but we think there are many more. I, and this is the weird stuff, you know, this is the kind of stuff that people don't prepare you for. No. Um, and, and it's never ending. The ripple effects are never ending. I, I, I keynoted an event uh, a couple months ago, a few months ago. I had a woman come up to me and she said, you she's like, I hope you don't find this really inappropriate. Um, she's like, I, I apologize if, if, you know, if this is bad, but she said, I need to tell you about this. She said, your dad abused this family. And she mentioned the, the family. And actually uh, my mom had spoken about this family and suspected that my dad had abused these two girls who are sisters. They're both mentally challenged. Um, they had um, a mental, some kind of mental disability, and I'm not sure what it was, but uh, the one, one sister got pregnant, and she said uh, she ended up losing the baby, and she said there were rumors for a long time, and, and she said, you know, the time period fits that we think that may be your dad. Mm. If you don't think that wasn't a tough pill to swallow, too. And it's just these, it's, there's just this whole sea of unknowns and it takes a tremendous amount of humility to, to, to accept it and to say, you know, he, we were fooled. I mean, on so many levels 
And to have the humility to do that and, and to stand with victims and say, you know what, I, I, not only, I not only believe you, but I support you and I defend you and I'm gonna stand by your side, whatever that looks like. And I, I still am trying to figure out what that looks like, you know? Um, today, uh, ironically, today is the birthday of what would have been the 46th birthday of my oldest brother. Uh, three, almost four years ago, I had a nine day old baby. Um, it was my, uh, my youngest son, Isaac. Nine days old, my wife, whose name is Natalie, by the way, um, she had just put Isaac to sleep, but he, she was having a hard time putting him down, so she tapped out. My phone rings, and it's one of my other sisters, and, and uh, she told me, she said, Mike's dead. And I said, what? And so uh, her name's Mandy. Uh, Mandy and I, uh, we're the first ones we, to show up at mom's house. Uh, mom still lives in the house that we grew up in in Shanksville. And my mom is in her bed, just sobbing, just sobbing, crying out, just screaming, wailing. Mm. And she looks up at me and she said, how much more can this family take? Mm. And she said, um, you know, here you are. And she was apologizing to me. And she said, you know, you're the one who got the call about your, about your dad. You're the one who had to report your dad. You're the one who had to lead your church through this. You're the one who had to show up to, to the one victim's family and, and tell the parents. You're the one who your dad called because dad didn't know that, that I reported him. She said, he called me after he gave his confession to confide in me. She said, you're the... And here you are, she said, you're the one showing up to take care of your mom. When, when I lost my oldest baby and she said, how much more can this family take? And all the family ended up, you know, showing up at mom's house, everybody who lives in, in, in state. And so we're all, you know, sitting around, we're crying. And then there was this moment where there's this awkward silence in the room and I, I felt what the awkward silence was. And so I looked at the family and I said, I'll be the one to make the call. And it was, the awkward silence was who's gonna call the prison and tell dad that, that Mike died. And there's just so many layers and so many ripple effects to this abuse that's never ending and never stops, it's never ending. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, people who haven't experienced it, I don't think have a capacity to really be able to truly understand. But at the same time, um, until we understand Jesus and know Jesus and look at his mission to, to reach out to those broken people, that level of brokenness, you don't have to experience it to be able to understand it. And, and you don't have to experience it to be able to have compassion, just basic compassion and right. understanding. Right. I agree. I agree. Before we close, I wanted to go down one, uh, just go down a little bit of a different path. Um, actually, I want to circle back to the videos that you were mentioned earlier about the Champions of Illusion videos. 
Yeah. I'm wondering how that would relate to, um, for example, many of the women that I work with really struggle with, uh, they're still living with their spouses. Some, a lot of them are, some mm-hmm. of them are out, but, um, they, they struggle with the fact that their spouses seem so good in so many different ways. And what made me think of this was when you were describing your dad, how he was your hero and he spent time with the family and they seem like a normal, healthy, good person in so many different ways. And yet they do these sideways things that are so destructive and so painful. Um, And they have a hard time putting those two things together in their mind. And so they keep going back and forth. Well, is it just in my head? Am I making a big deal out of nothing? Am I not giving him the benefit of the doubt? What's real? What's not? It's such a, there's so much deception. I'm just curious if those videos talk about that. Uh, So yes and no. And, And, you know, the one thing, what kind of opened up this door to this, and and I really wrestled with that. I mean, my whole identity just I, I immediately entered into this identity crisis. Uh, who am I? Who's my dad? Who? Uh, what was real for my childhood, and what was fake? Yeah. What, what part of him leading a church and preaching and um, people being baptized and all this? What part of that was real and what was fake? And I, you know, I really it was like this major identity crisis, but. What I started realizing was that um, pretty quickly, not only was he just a, a sexual abuser of one of the worst kinds, but um, uh, you know he's labeled an SVP as a sexually violent predator, which a judge has to be the one to to give that designation to you at the recommendation of the Sex Offender Assessment Board um, in the state capital, and as part of a plea deal that was removed, but um, you know, I found out pretty quickly from talking to, to victims of his and from talking to law enforcement and, you know, looking at records myself, he abused these kids in, in, in the worst possible inhumane ways. Um, when I talk to him still to this day, it, it was just, according to him, it was just, you know, it was kind of light, light petting over the clothes kind of thing. And so, you know, so that was, that was helpful for me to really break that down and understand. Yeah. People are capable of looking you right in the eyes and telling you one thing and they're doing something completely different. But one of the things that, you know, one of the reasons that I connected up with, um, with doctors Macnick and Martinez Conde is because they talk about visual and they actually studied magicians to shave off about 10 years of research for what they couldn't replicate in the lab. And it's how the brain responds to these visual illusions. And one of the things that I found out from talking to my dad, letters back and forth from prison and so forth, is that much of the abuse that he did was intentionally in front of their parents. So in in front of, I don't mean in two rooms over, I'm talking in front of, right in front of their face. So, you know, Larry Nasser abused, at least that we know of, 150 plus victims with mom and dad in the room, mom and dad or mom or dad in the examination room with him. He was full on uh, 
anally and uh, vaginally penetrating his victims. So, you know, we started going back and, and, and looking at the science of that and saying, okay, what is it about us that makes us blind to the abuse? And so I started focusing on technique, not behaviors, but technique. Because there's something about technique that this is more than just, you know, being attracted to children and, or, or being attracted to being abusive, verbally abusive. There's more to it than that. It's, it's that not only do they like abusing and, and inflicting harm on other people, but they showcase it, they flaunt it, and they use techniques to keep the abuse blind to other people so that the victim knows that they're being abused in front of other people. And in their minds, they're screaming out, why is this person seeing this happen to me and they're not doing anything about it? Mm-hmm. But the reality is, that the abuser is using techniques to keep that abuse blind to the people who are right in front of them. And they know who's responding to that. The abuser knows that. Yeah. And so it's just another level of, of, of um, deception and, and uh, wickedness. And um, yeah. So, so as we talk about it, you know, the, the science behind it, the, the, the nice thing about those videos and that presentation is that there's nothing gory. There's nothing that's triggering to abuser, or the, the abused, to victims of abuse. It's just talking about the science behind um, illusions and deception and how that works and how your brain responds and how we're not nearly as perceptive as we think we are. So all the people, all the church leaders who arrogantly come back and say, well, we're keeping an eye and if anything would be happening here, we'd be the first to know about it. Uh, no, you wouldn't. Hmm. And we have the science and the dem- demonstrations to prove it. None of us, I, I, none of us are as perceptive as we think we are. We all have these visual illusions because our brain creates um, the reality as we know it. Yeah. Yes. Well, so I think that really, even happens uh, with the reading of the Bible. We we've heard something for so many years when we read a verse, even even when <laughs> I've even. So even when you were earlier, when you were describing the, the, um, you were going over the do not forsake the assembly verse, even when you were using the words, the correct Greek words, you know, translated into English, I still had a hard time getting out of what I had heard before. I was still, you know, so when you hear something or when you're immersed in something, that's what you're going to see. Your brain's going to fill in the gaps. Absolutely. Absolutely, it does. And so, so abusers know too that that um, that their victims are are questioning this. The you know the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing. Yeah, uh, abusers know that the, that the victims are wrestling with that, and so they play into that. That becomes that just becomes another vulnerability. And so they do things like gaslighting and things like that. That's not just because it's a behavioral thing. That's actually a technique. Like yeah. that's a that's a very calculated technique. And I think if people understood the precision with which what abusers um, deceive other people within the faith communities and otherwise, um, you'd be astounded. It is really complex. And, you know, and I, I think that's why the analogy with magicians is um, it's a really good analogy because magicians on stage for them, it's just routine. You know, 
a magician is up on stage and they're not being wowed by their own tricks. Right. A magician is going through methodically step-by-step step, something that they practice in front of a mirror over and over and over and over again. And in their minds, a, magi a good magician will tell you this in their minds. They're thinking, I can't believe this actually works. That they can't <laughs> right. right in front of their face. Right. So, you know, for me, it's, um, I take a different approach and it's not about teaching people red flag behaviors because those are so generic that they don't tell us anything about technique. They give us some generic things about behaviors. Some of them are helpful. Some of them are not. But what I do is I say, you know, if we need to spin the, the perspective, spin the camera around a little bit. And instead of looking for a needle in a haystack and saying who among us could be an abuser, I bring people up onto the stage and I teach them the techniques. I teach them how to be a magician. And so I, you know, I talk about technique a lot and say, okay, here's, here's how the trick is done. Here's what they're doing step by step by step. So the flip side of that is if, if you fill a whole audience of trained professional magicians, um, what does that do to the stage magician's show? He no longer has a show because nobody in the audience is wowed. They, they all know what he's doing, when he's doing it, how he's doing it, and they can see that in real time because they all understand technique. And I so, love this. Yeah, so, when, so when, when we understand actual technique of deception and what abusers are doing, not the behaviors, not the, you know, like, well, they're narcissistic and it's all about control. Well, that stuff is true, but it tells me nothing about technique. Mm -hmm. I want to know about technique. I mm -hmm. want to know how they pulled it off. I want to know how they pulled the wool over everybody's eyes and did this stuff. You know, these guys are grabbing, grabbing women, sexually harassing them in churches. You, you you'd be shocked at how many stories I hear about that of adult women where these, these men, they're right in front of other people. They're, they're groping them all over. They're pulling at them. They're grabbing at them. And I'm like, well, for me, it makes sense. Like I understand, I understand technique. But all that, all that to say, if, if, if we know the technique, if we understand what they're doing, how they're doing it, how they're keeping us blind, we can now see it in real time and we can step in and we can intervene. Right. And it works. This isn't just theory. This is, uh, I, I've trained several people to do this and they've seen abusers abusing people in front of, right in front of them and they've intervened and they stopped and people have been reported and people have been kicked out of church and it's not hypothetical. They actually see them doing it and they speak to the, to the victims and the victims verify it. Yeah. He's been doing this to me for years. Wow. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting stuff. I'm kind of a nerd. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's fascinating. And I don't, I've never heard of anybody doing this actually before talking about this before. So in the church at least. Um, and so I'm really glad that you're doing this. I'm definitely going to refer people to those, um, to those videos. I'll put those links in the bottom and i we're gonna close now because we've gone this is a podcast and we're we're finished but <laughs> i would love to talk with you again in the future and because there's so many different things we could explore thank you so much for um taking the time to join me and talk about this especially from a pastor's perspective i think it's healing for me and for the people that are listening to this who have been spiritually abused by spiritual leaders to actually know that there are 
good pastors out there. There are good shepherds out there who who do have the heart of Christ, who do have the knee-jerk reaction of, I want to protect you, not, I'm, I can't wait to throw you to the wolves. And yeah. I, that's healing for us. So I really appreciate okay. that. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. <laughs>